Holy Week. We invite you to join us this week, not only for our Monday, Thursday service and a community Good Friday service and then Easter next Sunday, but join us this week as we are thinking about the final week in the life of Jesus. Mark's gospel in particular invites us to pay attention to not just the final three days, and we have a tendency to kind of compress it into that Friday, Saturday, Sunday, but Mark's gospel starts marking it off for us. For example, Mark's gospel, and only Mark's gospel, gives us a morning and an evening marker for Sunday. It was morning, evening. For Tuesday, it was morning and evening. And then on Thursday, it was morning and evening. Mark alone will detail the final day, Friday, of the life of Jesus. And he will mark it off with Roman military time, the watches every three hours. And as you read through Mark's gospel, at 6 a.m., it was early in the morning. At 9 a.m., he tells us that when it's noon, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and then at 6 p.m. finally when evening has come and you start as you're reading through that gospel you realize wait a minute he's wanting us to join us in this journey we began this journey of Lent several weeks ago saying we're following Jesus to Jerusalem it's time for us to reflect it's time for us to repent it's time for us to think about our lives and our priorities and where we are and now we're into this last week and Let's slow down. Let's take a deep breath and let's follow Jesus during these final days and these final hours. Today's Palm Sunday. The procession began at Caesarea Maritima. Caesarea on the sea, 60 miles north and west of Jerusalem. And like the Roman governors of Judea and Samaria before him, Pilate would live in that new city by the sea. It's so much better than living in Jerusalem with the breeze coming off the Mediterranean Sea. And Jerusalem had come such a hotbed of party politics and partisanship and often just too hostile. But for every Jewish holiday, and especially for Passover, Pilate, like his predecessors and like his successors, always went to Jerusalem. And he would enter from the west, leading this garrison in splendor and fashion and parade-like precision. And can you see the procession? Cavalry on horses, foot soldiers, Leather armor, helmets, weapons, banners, golden eagles on poles, sun reflecting on the metal and the gold. Can Can you hear the procession of those soldiers marching feet and leather creaking and bridles clinking and the sound of drums? And can you smell the swirling dust The people who are standing and watching, some in amazement, some afraid, some angry, some resentful. Entering from the west, riding at the head of this column of cavalry and soldiers, it is a show of imperial force and power. 
Historically, Passover meant liberation for the people of God, and there's always that chance they will go too far. There's always that chance there are some who will try to start something again, and so like his predecessors and like those that would come after him, Pilate makes the journey from Caesarea, enters from the west with this incredible show of force. It's a display of imperial power. And interestingly, it's a display of imperial theology. According to the theology of the day, the emperor wasn't simply the ruler of Rome, but the son of God. It began with the greatest of the emperors, Augustus, ruling when Jesus himself was born. The claim was that his father was the god Apollo, and that makes him, and here are the titles that we have found in inscriptions, it makes him son of God and Lord and Savior and the one who brought peace on earth. Sounds strangely familiar, doesn't it? And his successors claimed titles of divinity as well, including Tiberius, who was Caesar, king of the world at the time when Jesus is an adult and traveling and teaching and talking about the kingdom of God. Pilate's procession was a political statement of social order and a theological statement of power and intimidation and dominance and fear. And don't miss it, Jesus planned it in advance. A rival political and theological statement. A visible protest. He would enter on the same day and approximately the same time as Pilate and his military procession enters on the west side of the city. Jesus is coming up from the Mount of Olives and coming in on the east side. He tells two of his disciples to go into the next village and find a colt that had never been ridden on because no one has done what Jesus is about to do. And he enters the city, not with a cavalry, cavalry, but with some students. A crowd gathered of hopefuls spreading their cloaks and leafy branches on the road and, and, and shouting out in acclamation, Hosanna! Uh, a statement of adoration, but also a statement that means save us and help us and deliver us. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And the meaning is clear because the symbols are absolutely clear. Taken right out of scripture, the prophet Isaiah According to, uh, to Zechariah, excuse me, according to Zechariah, a king would come to Jerusalem humble and riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The king will bring peace to the nations, a king of peace. Pilate's parade symbolized power and glory and fear and violence of the empire that he represented an empire that ruled the world. And the procession that Jesus leads embodies an alternative vision, an alternative way of living, and Jesus called it 
the kingdom of God. And Jesus presents to the crowd who has gathered that day and the pilgrims who have come in and flooded Jerusalem as they always do at Passover, a choice. How will they live into the future? They must choose the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Caesar. And Jesus presents those of us who have gathered today with a choice. How will we live? How will we dream? How will we deal with reality, with pain and with celebrations and with hopefulness and with grief and with pain? We have a choice. The kingdom of God or the kingdom of our own Caesars. And sometimes we erect a kingdom about, well, it's attempts at control in our lives, controlling life and controlling health and controlling our future and our security and our finances and, and trying to control the people around us and, and keep them safe and doing the right things and moving in the right direction. It's not unusual that it spills over even that attempt to control and make life go the way we want it to go that we attempt to control God as well. If I do these things, then God will do this. If I pray this way, then God will do this. How can I get God to do the things I want God to do? How do I make God more like me? Sometimes it's just a kingdom of myself, erecting walls and digging moats and protecting myself from pain, protecting myself from outsiders, protecting myself and living a life of self-indulgence and self-centeredness and characterized by reluctance. I can't take the time to be quiet. I can't, can't take the time to be introspective, to be reflective to be alone. It's not unusual for such kingdoms to be characterized by hate and anger, blaming others when things don't quite go the way I want them to go, lashing out at anyone that I would characterize as the other if they don't hold my religious views or my views of the Bible or, or my views of politics or my views of our community. Anyone who disagrees or doesn't understand, I, I can just resort to name calling and hatred and and it even makes its way into the church. You can't say it's just on the left. You can't say it's just on the right. It's, it's about being human. Where we don't see it, we don't see it in Jesus. And that's something worth exploring this final week in the life of Jesus before Easter. How Jesus doesn't seem to be threatened. He doesn't seem to be worried. He seems to be at peace. He does not fear them. So why should I? Why should we? Throughout this journey of Lent, we've also paid attention to some of the Old Testament texts that go with each Sunday, with each Sunday's reading. And this one really grabbed my attention. It's, it's just so, well, it's one we overlook. There are four servant songs in the book of Isaiah. There are four songs about a suffering servant of God and a suffering servant of the people of God. 
And it didn't take long for the Christian community to read into those servant songs a way of understanding Jesus, a way of understanding who Jesus was and what Jesus did and and why he operated that way, and in particular, during this final week of the life of Jesus. And our Old Testament reading this morning is from Isaiah chapter 50. It's the third of four of those servant songs. And listen to the honesty in this, in this song. Listen to the poetry, but listen to the struggle. Listen to the relationship with God. And listen to where that relationship takes the servant. The challenge is find Jesus in this servant song. And then the second step is to find yourself as a follower of Jesus in this servant song. The Lord God has given me the tongue of a teacher that I may know how to sustain the weary with a word. And, and that does sound like Jesus. That does, whether he's standing up on the Sermon on the Mount or teaching his disciples in that small group that's gathered around them when they are tired or afraid, and especially as we close in this final week with scenes like the Garden of Gethsemane. Morning by morning, he wakens, wakens me, wakens my ear to listen as those who are taught. Seems sometimes it's easier to teach than it is to listen. It means we have to slow down. It's it's one thing to say, I want Jesus to listen to me. I want him to be that servant who hears what's happening and hears what the people around him are experiencing. And it's one thing to say, I even want to listen to God. But what happens when I start listening to God and listening to the people around me, listening to the people in our community, listening to how they are struggling and what they are facing? The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I did not turn backward. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who pulled out the beard. Suffering and torment. I find Jesus there. I I did not hide my face from insult and spitting. The Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. An image that I find of Jesus heading towards Jerusalem, knowing what is about to happen. Jesus kneeling down in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying, knowing what is about to happen, but discovering God's will and what God is going to do through even the difficult times. God who vindicates me is near, who will contend with me. Let us stand up together. Who are my adversaries? Let them confront me. It is the Lord God who helps me. He who will declare me, who will declare me guilty. And and I find in this, this this individual first in the book of Isaiah and the church quickly decides, wait a minute, this sounds like Jesus who is suffering. This sounds like Jesus who's struggling. This sounds like Jesus who decides to go forward in spite of what's happening, following the will that God has for him. Hmm. And what about me? Have I been open to being the tongue of a teacher? Those who are weary and struggling, have I incorporated that part of who Christ is in my life? Have have I taken the time to listen for God's voice, hearing that? And it isn't always easy following God's will. 
It isn't always easy coming in here and, and hearing the Word of God and, and singing words of praise and, and, and feeling the encouragement of the people around you, but then going back out to work or school or wherever it is that God takes you on mission and knowing that it is difficult. I, I can't hide from what's happening in the world. I can't hide from what's happening in my community. And Some days we have to set our face like flint and knowing that he who vindicates me is near. It's the Lord God who helps me. Some people complain about their jobs. They're boring and mundane, but that was never a problem for Robert Wilton. Beginning in his 20s, he worked as a stuntman for film and television shows. He rubbed elbows with the famous, those folks. He got to know them, became friends. He said there are days that he had a job where he would make more in one day than he had made in an entire month before. He was living his dream. His philosophy in those early years was to go as hard as he could, as fast as he could, for as long as he could. And on the outside, he wore this facade of being indestructible. No fear, no anxiety. Until he was 26 years old. And at 26, he received this gut punch when his 32-year-old brother dropped dead of a heart attack after eating the Thanksgiving meal. And the question started. He buried his pain by working, by playing even harder, but he said there were those rare moments when he would be quiet, usually after consuming too much alcohol, where he would start thinking and asking questions. And, and it wasn't just the death of his brother. He recalled a 10-year-old nephew who had strangely died from an allergic reaction to children's baby aspirin. And what now? What of his life? A neighbor had introduced him and his family to Jesus when he was a child. He had gone to church camp a couple of summers, and he looked for that child now that he was an adult. Could he find that believing little boy again? But it just seemed so distant in his life and so far away until one day he overheard a discussion about Jesus in a most unusual place. It happened after moving across the country to work on a new film, and one day he overheard, to his surprise, the movie stunt coordinator himself talking about God with another one of the stunt workers who were there. And so he eavesdropped in on this conversation, and it brought up all kinds of old memories and all kinds of questions. Do I still believe in God? Have I outgrown some of the things I learned as a child in Sunday school? And for one particular film that he was working on, he caught a ride with that stunt coordinator, a man that he labor dubbed the Preacher-nator, which is very awkward to those of us who are, yeah, the Preacher-nator. And so they're driving up to another state for this to be in this particular film, and the conversation, of course, finally turns to faith and religion, and Robert assured him that he was doing just fine without God, and he began regaling for him all the stories of his close calls and his narrow escapes. 
especially when he was working on these movie sets. There was the time, he said, for example, that he was tapped for a fire stunt at a monster truck rally, and this is how it was supposed to go. He was to, re- he was to rappel down a rope, land on top of a car. The driver would then set him on fire. They would go ru- uh, driving out into the arena and into a wooden wall, and he would crash through it while he was on fire. And nothing went right, he said. His rope snagged, so he couldn't rappel down. He had to cut the rope and fall farther than he had planned to fall. He landed on the roof of the car. The driver kept trying to set him on fire. He had put all this stuff on him. And, and he said after the fifth or sixth time and it wouldn't light, he just told him to go ahead and he floored it and they went out and he went flying through and went through the wooden wall and kind of got up a bit groggy and the, child, the, the crowd cheered and some of them wondered what it exactly happened and didn't happen and he said he looked down and he suddenly realized he had forgotten and I don't know this he had forgotten to rub the protective stunt gel on his face and his head and if he had been able to ignite the fire he's not sure he would have even survived the stunt And the preacher nader listened to the story and said, well, it sounds like God was still looking out after you. And the words cracked his pride. He started thinking about over his life, could could God have been looking out for him even when he had gone so far astray? And they had more conversations over the next year. You know, sometimes this faith journey takes a little while. We, We give up. We push. We should give the Holy Spirit some time to work. And over the next year, he is working and talking and and becoming friends. And Robert told him he didn't want to be a hypocrite. That's why he kept putting off this decision of whether he's going to follow Jesus or not. He said, "I, I can't go from being a perfect sinner one day to a perfect Christian the next. And the preachinator laughed and said, who's a perfect, who's perfect anyway? The Holy Spirit changes you over a lifetime not right away. And those words, he said, were like a little stone caught in his shoe. Everywhere he went, it just pestered him all day long. An interesting image of the Holy Spirit, isn't it? A stone, a pebble in your shoe. Is God real? Could God really love me again? Everything came to a head one dark and rainy night. He was supposed to jump off of a catwalk 50 or 60 feet in the air, land and grab hold of a chain with one hand, and as he goes down the chain, shoot with a pistol all the way to the floor. It was dangerous, much less when you take into consideration his hatred of heights. By the way, a little footnote, I would think if you're a stuntman, you would have dealt with that a long time ago. And he said he wondered if the moment to give his life to Jesus had finally arrived. (laughs) And this is the conversation he's having. I read his words to you. As I took a brief walk off the set, an internal debate raged within. One side of me said, you're only doing this because you might die, you hypocrite. Do it after you finish the stunt. And another side said, No, the whole point of giving my life to Jesus is in case I die, it's smarter to do it right now. So that's what I did. 
he wasn't sure what to expect. He said there was no immediate physical change, no immediate emotional or spiritual sensation, and he wondered if God had heard him, so he just kept it to himself and didn't tell anyone. But over the following weeks, he said two things happened. One, God had indeed heard his prayer, and two, that little pebble in his shoe was gone. Before long, he even had the confidence to start sharing with some other co-workers what he felt like God was doing in his life and the changes that were taking place in his attitude and in his behavior, things he couldn't, couldn't, uh, couldn't explain before. And then he had a conversation with one of those workers um, who had a great grief in his life. A friend's child had died and he asked him, where is God when this happens? And so he explained to him what he thought was the heart of God. And his friend said, thank you. His friend appreciated that he didn't just use some platitudes that others had told him, but was honest with his struggle and honest with his understanding. Here's what he writes. I think of this conversation from time to time because the question has been answered. I have lost children since that day. I watched my wife's heart crumble as she rocked our 19-year-old son while he died in her arms. Three years later, my wife watched me cradle our newborn daughter as she met the same fate. And God never promises us a life without pain and suffering. However, he more than sustains us through challenges. From the tremendous joy of a beautiful 20-year-old daughter to the depths of deep sorrow, my life attests to the truth that absolutely nothing can separate me from God's love. Jesus gave the crowd that day a choice. You can do it the way you've always been doing it. You can live the way you've always been living, and you can live with that kind of king, that kind of ruler, that kind of deity, that kind of theology. But that's not what God has intended, or God has dreamed, or God has desired for you. And he comes into town riding on a donkey, giving them an alternative way of living an alternative way of dreaming about the future, an alternative way of hoping, an alternative way of dealing with grief and pain and sorrow and joy and celebration, their lives. The preacher asked Robert what was holding him back from committing to Jesus. It's a good question. So what's holding you back? Afraid you can't change? That's what the Holy Spirit's for. What's holding you back? Afraid someone's going to find out about your past? That's, that's what grace is for. What's holding you back? Afraid you might fail? That's what the past is for. We're looking to the future. And we're going to follow Jesus to get there. Will you join me in prayer? And so, Lord, we stand here with palm branches. We have sung Hosanna, save us and help us and deliver us. 
Oh, it's what we need. It's what we must have. Hear us, Lord. Our hesitancy and our fear and our excuses, and will you take it away from us this day and replace it with hope and with faith and with love and with joy in Christ's name. Amen. In just a moment, we're going to sing, and we're going to sing like we mean it. And we're going to sing and invite Christ to be a regular part of our lives. And if you've never done that, we give you this chance. Why, why wait? Why keep trying it a way that's failing and a way that isn't working? Why not come and lay all of those burdens and all of that pain and all of that? Why not just lay that at the feet of Jesus and find out what God has been dreaming for you from the very beginning? Will you please stand as we worship?